So this week on the Straight Talk of Mental Health Podcast, we're talking to Erin Riley about her experience of being 20 years married to a narcissistic husband. I was married for 20 years and uh, my husband at the time, well, it's a long story. It's a big true crime, crazy, something you would see on Dateline, but moved to Panama, took all our stuff, got away with everything. He was just uh, the most, uh, the most perfect boyfriend you could imagine. You know, uh, they call this stage of narcissistic or any abusive relationships, the love bombing stage. My husband was uh, dissociative. I saw him black out, almost black out, like his eyes roll back and him start to shake, like he could really hurt me. That happened a few different times. And so toward the end, I was uh, afraid to move to Panama. You know, that's gaslighting, invalidating your reality. But if somebody gaslights you with a straight face over and over and over again for a year, for five years, for 20 years, I tell you, it does a number on your brain. so much for sticking me in your ear holes or watching my face on youtube on your smart tv on your phone wherever you may be listening wherever you may be watching thank you so much for tuning in to the straight talk and mental health podcast the podcast that does exactly that it straight talks mental health no fucking around no shy talk well plenty of shy talk <laughs> when it comes out of my mouth but we're just here to straight talk mental health when i say we this week i'm talking to erin riley another guest all the way over in the states back in new york she is now living in Philadelphia, though. And Erin is here. She's going to be talking about her experience of being married to a narcissist for 20 years. She's going to tell us about the cycle of abuse. She's going to talk about the love bombing, the gaslighting. Uh, and she's got some crazy stories. She was a rock DJ for a long, long time. And she's got a good story coming up around Lou Reed. Any more of her rock stories, you're going to have to buy her book. She's a great uh, marketeer, as you'll, as you'll hear in the podcast. Uh, so that's coming up later on. My name is Alan Clark. I'm a psychotherapist with a degree in counseling and psychotherapy and a master's in child adolescent psychotherapy. This is not a psychotherapy podcast, as you hear me talk about, but sometimes I put the psychotherapist hat on. Can't help myself sometimes. If you've never done so, now would be a great time for you to check out all the social media. You know what it is by now, folks. This is episode 124. You've heard enough plugs for the social media, but quickly to go through them. Check out the social media that is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> the handle on all of those is at STMH Podcast. That's also the handle on the YouTube channel. If you could click subscribe, if you could click follow, if you could comment, any of that sort of stuff would really give a help out to the channel where we can reach more people to talk about mental health. Or if you haven't, you can also check out the website. The website is www.stmhpodcast.com. And if you want to email, with your feedback and you're going to find out why I'm not inviting you to be a guest by getting in contact by email in a moment but you can do that by emailing hello at stmhpodcast.com this is the bit normally where I plug last week's episode or the last episode I'll quickly do that and you'll find out why in a moment so last episode we had Avigail Gimbel on she was uh, again from Manhattan New York she moved to Israel very much the proud Jewish mom if you haven't if you haven't heard the episode think Beverly Goldberg uh, as a teacher and she was on last week talking about her experience of having six, well, some officially diagnosed, some after a while she just gave up getting them diagnosed. And went, yeah, yeah, you're with the rest of the crew and her husband, all with ADHD. Uh, fascinating story and uh, really very much, I think the thing that struck me was very much someone who was like, you know, forget the diagnosis, see the child, work on behaviours, 
And, you know, the, the, the shocking thing for me was saying that she knew of two-year-olds being diagnosed and medicated, uh, I think, in Israel, where, where she is currently. Uh, that absolutely shocked me. And it always shocks me when, when we have guests on from America of how quickly the children are diagnosed over there. I'm not I'm not one into the whole big pharma and all of that sort of stuff, but uh, uh, America's reliance on medication rather than behavioral treatments is always, is always shocking. Um, every guest that comes on from America and how, how young they're medicated and how, how readily they're medicated always, always shocks me. So a big, huge thank you to Abigail if you haven't already. Ding, ding, ding. There you go. There's, there's the plug for, for last week's episode. So as I said, normally with the, normally with the plug on the social media, you hear me talk about if you'd like to come on and be a guest and that's, you know, slide into the DMs or email the podcast. Uh, I'm not offering anyone to do that anymore and the reason being is because the next next episode will be the last episode um, something I've been considering over the last while regular listeners to the podcast will know when it was myself and Peter whether it was myself and Michelle who stepped in for a little while or Cammy or my former partner Ashling. the podcast for me and the condition for doing it when Peter approached me about doing it was Absolutely, no problem at all, but I don't want it to feel like work. When it was myself and Peter for all those episodes, it was, you know, I just want to be chatting to my mate, and we just happen to be talking about mental health. It doesn't feel like that anymore. For me, the fun is gone. It's, it's kind of like, you know, the, the ads for the gambling. You know, when the fun stops, stops. And it's not it's not even just the fun. I do. I absolutely enjoy talking to the guests, as, as I enjoy talking to Aaron later on. But it's very much feeling like work. You know, you would have heard me talk about last week when I had to pull an episode, you know, five or six hours that goes into editing every episode and then uploading and putting on, you know, putting up posts and stuff like that. And it's just not worth it. Uh, you'll hear my rile later on in the show of how throttled uh, posts are by Facebook or any, any of the social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, etc., etc. It's just, it makes it nearly impossible to for, for the people to need to see it, to get actually get to see it. So, the next one will be the last episode. I'm going out on episode 125, and just before, um, just before recording, I checked the date. It goes out on the 25th, and the 25th of April is actually my birthday, so there's a lot of synchronicity there. Episode 125 will be out on the 25th, which will be my 46th birthday. So I think there's some symbolism in that, maybe somewhere along the way. It's not a decision I've taken lightly. I've been considering it for a while. I've looked at options of how to grow. You know, the podcast numbers are still good. It's just it's just stagnated. It, it hasn't grown and I, I can't justify the time anymore, nor the expense. You know, the, the podcast studio online to talk to guests, that costs money. The software to edit the podcast costs money. The software for editing the artwork costs money. There's the yearly hosting. There's the annual hosting on the website. There's the domain name. A lot, a lot of money has gone into this podcast over the years. And, um, you know, the podcast has never been for profit. It's always just been about, you know, trying to do it because it's the right thing to do and help so many people. And I enjoyed it when I when I had my co-host. I enjoyed it. You know, I got to have the crack. I got to have the chat with my friends or my former partner or my son or my friend Michelle. And I don't get that anymore. I don't get that with no co-host. 
Um, the thing that I always pushed for with Peter was, you know, our, our little chat at the start. I started it was a few minutes and we went straight to the topic. And that grew because that's what resonated with people. People loved the banter. They loved the, the chemistry between us. The, the more popular episodes of the uh, of the podcast, one of myself and Ashley, were the check-in episodes where we were just chatting. And they were the ones that resonated with people. So people always would tune into that bit and sometimes they may not have had interest and, and I've heard it from guests and I've heard it from uh, clients that I've had. I've got clients from the podcast and I've got clients who listen to the podcast and they have, so I always like, I wouldn't necessarily have been interested in the, in the topic, but I was listening to the first bit and I just kept listening and they ended up really enjoying it. So that used to be a lure for a lot of people. And obviously that's not there because it's just this bit here now of me talking to camera and there's no fun in that for me. So I can't, I can't justify the expense and I can't justify the time anymore. So it is with a very heavy, very heavy heart that the next episode will be the last. So I'll invite you to please do get in contact. Please comment on any of the posts. Please email hello at stmhpodcast.com or DM on any of the social media. If you've taken anything from the podcast over the almost three years, it's going to be almost three years when the podcast comes to an end. If there's been a particularly dip, uh, uh, difficult episode that stood out for you, some, someone's story that they're like, wow, you know, that really struck you. Or if you've learned something from any of the episodes, if the podcast has helped you in any way, whether it's just been entertained by whoever I was talking to, or, you know, maybe it helped with your own relationship. I know many, many guests from the correspondence I've had in the past have ended up getting into therapy because of the podcast. I know people's relationships have worked out because of the podcast. If you are one of those people, please do get in contact. Or if I've never heard from you, now would be a wonderful time to hear from you. What I will do is I will reach out to my former co-hosts, Cammy, my son Cameron, and Peter. Peter helped found, are my former co-founder and former co-host of the podcast. I'm going to reach out to the lads. I'm sure they'll be okay for, for jumping on. So for the final time, in two weeks' time, it will be the last episode of the Straight Talking Mental Health Podcast. But we'll bow out. We'll bow out gracefully. We'll have we'll have our experiences of the of the podcast. I probably should have texted the lads, but I I think they'll be okay. I'll have to. I can definitely guilt Cameron in as my son. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely give him a shout. He should be okay, and I'm sure Peter would love to would love to give the podcast a send off. So that will be in two weeks' time, folks. Uh, so please, it would really mean a lot if the podcast has meant anything to you over the years. Please just let me know your thoughts. Let me know how you felt about the podcast. Um, I will absolutely be still out there. You know, I'll I'll keep the, I'll keep the all the podcasts, social media and stuff going on. I'm still invited on the guests as podcasts. I'll I'll post up stuff onto that. Um, that'll be on all the social media at STMH Podcast. Uh, my own on Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that is just at Alan Clark A L L A N C L A R K E. I'll post stuff up there. Uh, but it will mean a lot to hear from anyone that that maybe listened to this episode and that has taken anything from the podcast. So that's what's coming up in two weeks' time, folks. That'll be the last episode. But before then, we've got one more to go, and that is around a narcissistic husband and Erin Riley, the original rock chick, for you to hear to tell her story. It is almost 10pm on a Wednesday night in Ireland as we begin to record. I've been in psychotherapist mode. I've been in daddy mode all day. I literally, out of sight of camera, have my slippers on. I can assure you, I am a, a, certainly a middle-aged man. I am not living a life of rock and roll. But a woman who has is our guest this week, and she's here to tell her story. 
And she has about as fairly Irish name as you can imagine as well. We're going to cross all the way over to the States to have a chat with Erin Riley. Erin, how are you tonight, this afternoon, your time, I understand? It's uh, just a little bit before dinner time where I am in Philadelphia, and I'm doing just great, Alan. Thank you for having me on your show. Excellent. Are, 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 your, are your people from the old country, are they? Uh, I believe if you go far and far, you'd have to go back. I want to say that um, my father's family is the more Irish side of the family, and they brag about coming over on the Mayflower. So it goes <laughs> back a long time, but we were uh, in here in the United States family for over 300 years, more. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, And my mom's Greek. In, what 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 does a mix like that mm -hmm. look like, Erin? Greek and Irish. What's what's that sort of combo? Yeah, drinking problem. No, sorry. I would assume. <laughs> oh, for a hundred percent, if it's Irish. <laughs> Those Greeks, they like to drink as well too. They have their little uh, what is it called, ouzo that they drink. Ouzo, yeah, drink yeah. That they like. So, um, <laughs> take me for uh, Italian because I have dark coloring. You know, thinking I'm Italian, and that's the Greek side. But there's mm -hmm. the whole dark Irish side as well, too. So, you know, anyway, yeah, I don't know. It uh, it shows up in me in uh, in uh, I guess I I don't really know. I'm so American. I'm born and raised <laughs> in Manhattan, in New York City, in 1959. Regular listeners to the show will be aware that we have our feature called Smiles and Riles. That's something that's got us smiling recently or something that's got us riled recently something that's got us annoyed or pissed off or, or even got us down because life isn't all about smiles it's not all about riles it's it's the yin to the yang it's the black and the white um and everything in between all the gray bits in the middle so erin as our guest you have the choice to go if you would like to start with a smile or a rile to kick us off uh, well i always like to keep a positive spin on things you know i'm a glass half full person so mm. what has brought me smiling last several years, last five years or so, is uh, my French bulldog puppy. His name is Murphy. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I spend most of my time walking my dog in the park and feeding him breakfast and snuggling with him in bed and watching movies together. And he's like my constant companion. And he is a French bulldog, so he smiles all the time. He just looks like that. You know, it's like a cat smile. So, yeah, that mm. makes me smile. That would make anybody smile. Fred smiles all yeah. around the world, my dog. Uh, why Morphe? What made you get Morphe, Erin? Why, why, why the bulldog? Why the bulldog? Well, let's see. Um, so my book, uh, which is called A Dark Force, 20 Years with a Covert Narcissist, I was married for 20 years, and uh, my husband at the time, uh, well, it's a long story. It's a big true crime, crazy, something you would see on Dateline, but moved to Panama, took all our stuff, got away with everything. Uh, so that all said, uh, wait, did I lose the question after starting to tell you that? Like, oh, why a French bulldog? Um, <laughs> I'd had a beautiful, uh, what's Bernie's mountain dog, hundred pound, big, hairy, fluffy, gorgeous mm. dog. And she moved to Panama with my husband. Uh, I moved into an apartment after I got divorced and I couldn't have a hundred pound dog. They had a 25 pound weight limit. So I decided I wanted to get a French Bulldog because I had heard so many good things about their personality, that they have a personality that's a lot like a And they really do. They're very different uh, than any other dog I ever had. So it is really like having a buddy in the house. Go through a big traumatic, you know, discard from a narcissist and a divorce at my age and you're like 60. 
uh, having a happy little friend to make you smile and laugh all the time can really help things along. Yeah, I've always been fond of the expression, be the person your dog thinks you are. I am also a fan of that expression, right? Because your mm. dogs look at you with love in their eyes. You know, wonderful. Everybody needs that, you know? Everybody needs a little bit of validation and like to keep kicking it back to the narcissism. If you are somebody who has been either in a work, close work relationship or a dating relationship or a marriage with a narcissist, you don't feel seen. You don't feel validated. You don't feel listened to, cared for, or considered. And, uh, and it really leaves a big gaping empty hole in a person because really that's what a relationship is supposed to be. You know, it's supposed to fill up your soul, you know, and make things possible and give you the belief that you can do anything, you know, just like love from your, from your parents should do as well, too. Uh, and of course, not all marriages are like that, you know, but they should be. Uh, but a dog will do that for you, for sure. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly makes sense why, why you'd go for that after after that kind of experience. I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to follow you up with a, with a smiler and we'll go smile, smile, and then we'll go rile, rile. Uh, so my smile this week, um, my former co-founder of the of the podcast, Peter Peter Dunn, who is now the breakfast host. Uh, he followed you into radio, Aaron. He is a host of the breakfast show on Midlands One Hundred Three, and my other former co-host of the podcast, my eldest son Cameron. They they are working together. They're the kind of breakfast team duo on the radio. But they were hosting um, a charity night for mental health on the radio show recently, which culminated in. Um, the live event on, on Saturday night where people were getting their hair dyed or were getting their hair shaved or were getting waxed. So there was men in there getting their legs waxed. There was men in there getting their chest waxed. Uh, there was women in there getting their hair spray dyed um, and people getting all their head shaved off, all of their beards shaved off. And the, the guys raised an awful lot of money, which was fantastic. But it was not only that, it was seen... Seeing my two friends, I literally hadn't seen Peter. Myself and Peter started out uh, making music together many years ago, about oh, 17 or 18 years ago. And we probably haven't seen each other in about 15 years. Despite doing the podcast together, we started remotely during, during COVID, during lockdown, the height of lockdown. So it was my first time seeing Peter in about 15 or 16 years. And I also got to see my son Cameron in action as, as a host, which was, it was nice to see him um, kind of really come out in himself and... To just to, to just sit back and watch and go, yeah, he, he he's picked up the mic where I left off. Him and Peter have good uh, good chemistry together. And they raise a lot of money for a counselling service down in the Midlands, down in Tullamore. So I think they set out with a goal to raise 500 euros or something for this counselling service. And I think they ended up coming away with about 20 grand or something like that. So an absolutely wonderful, uh, a wonderful night. And it was lovely to see the guys, my, my son, my eldest son and, and, and Peter, my old, my old co-host and co-founder of the podcast. So that is my smile this week. Well, that's wonderful. There's nothing better than seeing your children, you know, happy launching, mm. you know, uh, fulfilling dreams and things like that. I have a son and he is 31 this year. So I also like, you know, having an adult relationship with my son, uh, who I think is a really good person. Good. Have you, have you got a rile for me, Erin? What's got you riled recently? People that don't do what they say they're going to do. That's driving oh, me. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's so... You know, or don't say it. I get it. I get it. Got you riled. 
Yeah, well, that that would certainly be yeah, that would be a common royal for me. My 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 royal this week though is um a little less like that, um as anyone that's that's tried to integrate social media as a way to to uh publicize anything, whether it's a podcast or a book or anything like that. Um, one of the one of the downfalls around utilizing social media is basically you have to pay for the people to 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 see your material so if you post something up on facebook or tiktok or anything like that um unless you're paying they're really really going to throttle how many people will see your stuff so we started out i kind of stopped i stopped looking for people to you know actively kind of going after people to follow the facebook page i think that i left it at about kind of 1400 because after that it was just uh, it was just futile so you know you could put a post up on facebook you know out of 1400 people facebook shows it to eight um and it's extremely frustrating you know you put a lot of work into trying to advertise the podcast and promoting people's episodes and stuff like that so just as a just as a kind of um experiment during the week i was like i'll boost it you know so facebook is always like oh you can boost this post boost this post pay x amount and we'll show blah 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 so it's like i'll just i'll just do it just out of just out of curiosity so i think it's all right i'll do it for 10 euros i'll, I'll boost the post sure. and it still only ended up being seen by 800 people or something like that so extremely frustrating extremely frustrating that you know if, if you're not paying the people that are regular listeners to the podcast typically aren't aren't seeing what we put up unless the they regularly interact with it. So I think the whole social media side of things and I think social media, you know, I wish I wish it was a necessity. I I really just I have a big distaste for social media. You know, I kind of like love it and hate it like everyone, but I certainly don't. Uh, I don't like how much time it takes away from other things in life. But it's a necessity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is, especially when you're trying to, you know, promote something like a podcast or or a book or anything like that. You know, it's, it's. I, I think we had a we had a episode. It was actually my first my my son Cameron's first time on the show. He had wrote an art when he was studying journalism. He's he's completed his degree now, but when he was studying, he'd wrote an article called, I think it was, uh, the social dilemma of uh, social media being the poison and the antidote. Um, so he kind of weighed up the pros and cons of it, but. It certainly, it certainly comes with with both. And for anyone that's into kind of trying to promote themselves, you know, you're basically at nothing unless you're unless you're continuously paying money for the people who have chosen to see your material to actually to actually see it. Yes, you have good reason to be riled, sir. Very good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be fair, Aaron, it takes very little to get me riled anyway. I'm 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 a cranky middle aged man here, so. <laughs> Hey, listen, all this first world problems, right? These are first world <laughs> yeah. problems that we're frustrated by paying for me. Some yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the smiles and royals out of the way then, Aaron. Before we get into our topic, which is around, you know, so basically, so I married a narcissist, essentially. Um, let, let's tell us, let, let's, maybe you could kick off by just telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about of your background, you know, what it was like growing up in, in New York, that, that childhood and, and where that has led to you in later life. Uh, I'd be happy to. Actually, let me tell you this, you know, sort of under the guise of my book. My book is a memoir. So I'm holding it up again. Mm. There it is. My book is a memoir and I didn't just marry a narcissist out of the blue. You know, I didn't just get unlucky and pick a narcissist. There's a reason why narcissists. Uh, select certain people, you know, certain people who either 
don't fight back, don't push back, you know, are mm. more gullible, you know, malleable. Uh, maybe they have resources that the narcissist would want. So they choose people, you know, that feel a certain way to them. They may even test them by saying, well, if I do this inappropriate thing and they don't, you know, set a boundary with me, then I can push it a little further. So they are testing you. Uh, so that all said, when I wrote my memoir, I had to go all the, all the way back to the beginning of my childhood to understand what it was about me that made me attractive to a narcissist because I never, I didn't meet and get into a relationship with a narcissist until I was 40 years old. So it was very surprising. So let's go mm. back to 1959. I was born in the era of madmen. Like I say in the opening of my book, my mother was a very high fashion couture model, like on runways with the biggest designers in New York city and going to the white house and, you know, traveling to Milan and wearing $10,000 dresses and wigs false eyelashes and go-go boots. Not anything that a mom was wearing or looking like. I was completely embarrassed by it. I was like, why can't you just be normal? You're like a freak. I didn't want anybody to see my mother, this beautiful woman, you know, that everybody was taking pictures of. I didn't want my friends to know that was my mother. Uh, uh, so that was one kind of a weird thing. I don't think most people have a mom like I had. Um, I don't want to disrespect my mom because she's passed a couple of years ago. And, you know, I love my mother, of course. But the first time I saw the movie Mommy Dearest, which uh, stars Joan Crawford, and it's a true story of her, Joan Crawford, the movie star, and her daughter, Christina Crawford's experience being her daughter, I thought, oh, that's more like what my mom's like. And again, my mother was not as bad as Joan Crawford as a mother, but that kind of a vision where your mother's a movie star. She's somewhat untouchable. She's like glass. Other people take pictures of her. Everyone's in awe of her. And as a little girl, it made me feel kind of invisible. And I think my mom wanted it that way. You know, I was a little chubby as a kid, and she's this glorious model. And I, I don't think my mom really chose to have a child. You know, she just, oops, like back in the day, that happened, you know, a lot. So, uh, and then, of course, she had my brother, so then she had two children. But I don't think my mother should have had children. You know, I don't think she really wanted children. She was much more self-centered. Uh, so that was my experience. My mom is this fashion model child where everybody else thought that was a great thing to have. And as a little girl, you just want your mom to bake cupcakes and come to the school and, you know, volunteer and pat you on the head. Uh, my father was an actor, but not a very successful one. He had a lot of successful friends. So his friends were like Tony Curtis and Walter Matthau. And his best friend was an actress by the name of Nancy Marchand. And she played on the Lou Grant show, but she was also Olivia Soprano in The Sopranos and was in many movies. So I grew up, you know, with a lot of celebrities that were sort of my parents' friends coming and going and whatnot. So it kind of looked like a Mad Men scene, but it sure didn't look like or feel like a family. All right. So that's why when I wrote my book, I had to go way back to the beginning. So growing up in New York, I was left to pretty much raise myself a lot. Uh, it was safer time in the 60s to be in New York City. I could take the bus down to the village by myself for dance classes, or I could go to the park by myself. I could go stay to friends. Didn't have to tell my parents where I was. They didn't really pay attention to that. Like, all right, are you coming home for dinner or not? Even if I was six, seven, eight years old. It's like a totally different time. So 
I lived an independent life in New York. And I think what happened to me growing up in the 60s, your parents are telling you, shut up. Nobody cares what you have to say. You know, and not in a mean way. They're all joking. We all, all people my age grew up with parents saying, uh, because I said so, that's why. You know, or uh, I'll give you something to cry about, or don't do as I do, do as I say. All those little sayings from the parents, you know, tossed at their kids. I really think it caused a big problem for a lot of people, at least myself, where it sort of gave you like a lack of identity. You know, like you don't have rights, you don't have an opinion, and we don't care what it is. You eat what we put on the table and you shut up. All right. So I kept thinking, I didn't take it personally. I didn't think I was bad or not worthy. I thought all kids had this dilemma where the parents are in charge and the kids have no rights. And I just couldn't wait to be a grown up so I could be a, you know, make decisions and eat what I want and do what I want, you know, do whatever I want to. Uh, so when I turned 18, I did exactly that. <laughs> So uh, uh, just a real quick sidestep. I grew up in New York City, but at age 10, my parents moved us to a little town in central New Jersey. And the reason for that was because my father had promised my mom he could quit drinking if we could get out of the city. It was just tempting for him to be, uh, you know, in Manhattan with all his actor friends, with a bar in every corner, you know, and maybe if he could go be a, buy a farm and live in the country, he could stay sober. And so my mom gave him that chance. And so we moved out to New Jersey when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And honestly, that made it even worse for me because uh, it took me away from my friends. And my friends were really my only solid rock of feeling connected in life. You know, I didn't feel connected to my family, so I felt connected to my friends. So to be taken away from them, I was just drowning. You know, I was drowning as a kid and I got in a lot of trouble. And I'm going to cry a little bit when I talk about being a young kid and getting involved with, you know, drugs and alcohol and sex and, you know, shoplifting or anything for attention, anything to, you know, feel as though, uh, you know, people cared about me. Maybe my parents would, maybe they would ground me or, you know, whatever, take away some privileges. But they were like, oh, well, you know, kids get in trouble. I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to end up in jail before they notice me for sure. Uh, so fast forward to, I'm about 17, my dad had a terrible accident, he fell down a flight of stairs, he had several brothers, result of it, we ended up on disability, my mom left us, uh, and left my brother and I, my younger brother and I, in the house with my dad, and uh, that was a really bad scene, he was uh, epileptic and drinking, it was a mess, uh, and uh, I ran away, I just ran off to California. I was like, forget it, just leaving. I got on a bus and, uh, and I moved to California at age 19 uh, by myself and uh, got a job in a small photo lab, uh, adding up the invoices. I was the local, I was a little billing clerk girl. So I added up the invoices on my trusty paper calculator, out front in the bins for people. And uh, by just some sort of stroke of I don't know what they call it, like a flash of luck happened to me. And one of the customers was a radio DJ in Philadelphia, or Philadelphia, I'm sorry, in Los Angeles. He was a radio DJ. And uh, there's a whole story in the book that explains how I met him and whatnot, but we started seeing each other and uh, I would go to work with him. And I really loved being at the radio station. He worked from 10 to two at night. There were no bosses there and he's playing records and talking on the mic and, you know, talking on the phone to listeners who are requesting songs. And I was like, 
this is a job? How do I get this kind of job? This is a cool job. And he said, a trained monkey could do this. And I thought, okay, here we go. So that's what happened. So I started volunteering at radio stations in Los Angeles until I was just there at the right time and the right place and somebody didn't show up and Aaron, can you go on the air? So uh, that happened to me at a really cool little radio station in Pasadena in Los Angeles called K-Rock that later became one of the biggest radio stations in the United States. It just became this known as the rock of the 80s and they were sort of debuting all the alternative bands in the late 70s and, you know, first ones to play the Talking Heads or, you know, Elvis Costello or, you know, Oingo Boingo or other bands that have, you know, gone on to great success. Danny Elfman of Boingo has probably won several, you know, uh, uh, Academy Awards for his work uh, doing music for Batman movies and other things. So, you know, these were just like little local bands. But anyhow, it was a really fun job. I loved it. And uh, that's kind of how I broke into the radio business. I met a DJ, loved what he did, started volunteering uh, until I just got lucky. And uh, that led me to a 40-year-long career in radio, records, recording studios. I worked for the Grammys. I started my own children's music school. Uh, music became the next 40 years of my life. So that's kind of what leads me up to meeting my narcissistic husband. Before we get there, Aaron, I, I, I just know if, 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 if I didn't ask for some stories, for some experiences that you had in those 40 years of rock and roll, literally, give us something, give the listeners something, because I, I know full well they're like, you can't just let that go. You can't, you can't let her slide by without giving, giving something. I know, you know, you're talking to Stones, you're talking Aerosmith, we're talking all of that. Absolutely. Uh, so I would say, of course, like a good author, I would say, buy my book. The stories are in the book. <laughs> I have a few stories in the book. I have one about Steve Tyler. I have one about uh, Keith Richards, which is great, from the Rolling Stones. And then I have a story about John Bon Jovi and one about James Taylor. But I do have thousands of stories. I mean, thousands and thousands of stories of great experiences. So uh, I don't even know, where, what shall we, do we want to tell the Keith Richards story that's in the book or save that for somebody that might buy it? Even Tyler's story. You decide. We're not going. We're not going to take it away from your book. So you you give us something, even if it's one that's that's not in the book. Something something that you think um, is worthy. Can I tell a long story about Lou Reed? Uh, absolutely. Lou Reed. Does that work? Yeah, yeah, that'll work. All right. Let me see if I can do this justice. You might have to have been there. I hope it comes off okay because it's a little complicated. So, I was the music director, person who chose all the songs for the radio station at WMMR in Philadelphia. And Lou Reed was scheduled to come in for an interview, but he was supposed to arrive at the station at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I told him, you got to be here at three o'clock, right? Because our DJ goes and does a live happy hour from four to six at a club. All right. So you got to get here at three. Well, he didn't show up at three. You know, he's operating on rock star time. So he shows up at 3.30. And the DJ was already on the way to the And I said, Lou, I'm so sorry. There's nothing I can do. It was Lou and the record representative, all right? It's not like Lou shows up alone. I said, I'm so sorry, but, you know, you've really, you know, I needed you to be here at 3 o'clock because now they're down at a club in Chinatown doing a live broadcast with hundreds of listeners. 
I said, unless you want to go and do it live there at the club. And he goes, sure. And I never thought he would do that because Lou Reed is, you know, at least my assumption, a private kind of a guy. Walking to a big crowd of fans, but he was up for it. So I called the club. I go, we're coming down. DJ's like, oh, cool. He starts talking to the club. You know, people are at the club and saying, Lou Reed's coming, Lou Reed's coming. And they're all so excited because they think they're just going to have beers and they're Hawaiian shirts for Friday afternoon radio, you know, thing. And they're going to meet a rock star. Right. So we drive down there, we walk in, and of course the whole crowd starts going, you know, just like at a Bruce Springsteen concert. And he's just like parading around, leather jacket, and I'm Lou Reed. All right. So he does a little interview and everybody's thrilled, you know, cheers, yay. We come out of the club and he says to me, I'm starving. Where can I get something to eat? And I said, well, you're in Chinatown. There's like a hundred Chinese restaurants on the same block. And he said, well, take me to your favorite one. So we walk around the corner to this Chinese restaurant. We sit down at this round table and there are four of us there. Lou Reed, the record guy, me, and uh, my assistant are there. So four of us at this table. Now, sidebar, Lou had just quit drinking. Okay, so Lou was really working hard on his sobriety at this time. So when the waiter comes over, he comes over with this little, you know, Thing. He says, you know, can I get you a drink? And Lou says, I'll have a moosey beer. Just moose, moosey, moose. And he goes, yeah, moosey beer. You have moosey beer. Now, another sidebar. The non-alcoholic version of the Canadian beer, moosehead. All right. But this Chinese waiter didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And he's like, uh, moosey beer. Do you have moosey beer? He goes, do you have any non-alcoholic beer? Anything. Anything non-alcoholic beer. And he's like, moose, moose, doesn't get it. So Lou's getting a little perturbed. We go around, we each order, you know, Coke, wine, whatever we're having. And the waiter goes back over to the bar. And you can kind of see them like talking, the bartender and the waiter, like back and forth. They're looking over at the table. Guy comes back to the table, looks at Lou and he goes, sweet gin? And Lou goes, Moose beer. I can't drink any gin. Give me a freaking water. Like that. And I went, guy goes, sweet gin? And I said, Lou, sweet Jane. They just figured out who you are. (laughs) So here's Lou about to jump. He's all worked, right? And here's the guy's just another fan, you know, just another fan who's all like nervous and doesn't want to do the wrong thing. And so anyway, it ended up that Lou had a glass of water and we all had a good old chuckle. So that was a funny story. <laughs> sort of. How, how do you go from that point to, as, as we get into it, and marrying a narcissist? You know, typically, you know, that's that's the kind of uh, the road that maybe a younger person, a more inexperienced person uh, would walk. How how did you get into that life? I would say that there were probably little, you know, elements of narcissistic behavior that I accepted throughout my life based on, God rest her soul, my mom, who was rather narcissistic, mom. And so I learned, I'll tell you what was the, the biggest thing that my mother would do to me is that she would stonewall me. She would ignore me when I asked her for help. I go, mom, what would you do about, 
you should do whatever you want, dear. Or she would just ignore me like, I'm busy, you know. So I always felt very invisible to my mom. And I learned to accept that from people. So when people would disrespect me or disregard me or whatever, I would just go, all right, fine. You want to act like that? I'm not going to let that bother me. You know, that doesn't affect who I am if you want to be a jerk. And so I allowed it without actually learning how to set a boundary that was appropriate that would sort of demonstrate to that other person, no, you know, no, I don't accept what you're saying. No, I don't like the way that you're speaking to me. You know, you don't just say to yourself in your, you know, in your mind, I'm not going to let it bother me because you're allowing yourself by letting that person treat you that way to be disrespected. And over time, it will, it will knock you down. So I'm sure that I took that role in many different relationships in my life, including in the music business, where it's a patriarchy and there's a lot of misogyny. The men control the music business. They always have. And it was even more so when I was in the music business. I was probably one of about 5%, you know, of women. I would go out on some kind of trip or junket or some kind of an event, and it'd be like me and maybe one other girl and about 25 men. That would be always the percentage. Five to 10% of us are women, the rest are men. And they could really get away with a lot. And I knew that I was lucky to have that job and that I would probably uh, be so easily replaced. So it's an ongoing pattern of behavior. I would learn to accept poor behavior from my bosses or, you know, other equals in the music business, maybe some record people that were inappropriate with me. I'd go, ah, ha, 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 oh, oh, stop. You know, when I should have said something like, I don't appreciate what you're saying and I won't accept that, you know, and that's something that I didn't really learn uh, in my young life. So that said, I was married one time before I married the narcissist uh, to a guy who I was married six years to my first husband and I wouldn't call him a clinical narcissist, he was certainly an alcoholic and he had plenty of issues and problems, but he certainly also knew how to use all those little narcissistic tricks like stonewalling and uh, gaslighting and triangulation. And I accepted those things because my mom taught me to, you know, that I would just say, well, I'm not going to let that bother me. But over time, it just takes you away as a person because, you know, what you need to come to as a person is the realization that it's you. That's, there, there's a me here, you know, and I really have to uh, decide what I want, how I feel, and what I will accept, right? So uh, uh, my childhood is what kind of kept me going through and maybe being treated by a lot of people in that way and not pushing back. I guess I was lucky to not meet a real narcissist until I was 40, you know? I, that might have been some fortune, good fortune. What happened when you did meet him then, Aaron? What what transpired then? Over he those, was a over very different uh, person than I'd ever met before. You know, we met on a dating site. It's like twenty. Gosh, hold on, let me think. Nineteen ninety nine, twenty four years ago. So we met on Match dot com, which I think had just started, like within mm. a year, and uh, he seemed very different. I had met so many really outgoing people, you know, in the music business and uh, sales guys, you know, confident guys, rock stars, you know, musicians, people who are kind of cocky and whatever. He, this guy seemed like just really safe, 
You know, I was, boy, was I wrong. He was playing a safe role. He was very unsafe, but he seemed like mild-mannered, good listener, you know, helpful, helpful. But uh, something very important to communicate here is that I did feel a real, like sort of a, something was off about this guy on our very first date. First time I met him, I was like, something's weird about this guy. I felt like he might have lied to me. You know, some weird things happened, things he said. But instead of uh, saying, okay, that doesn't make me feel good. I don't like the way I feel inside. So maybe there's something that my body is trying to tell me about this person. Instead, I used my in insane cognitive dissonance skills that I picked up by, you know, living in survival mode myself in New York City. I used those skills to just, you know, push that stuff down and say, well, Aaron, let me rationalize it. He's just you know, a gentleman and he's helpful and maybe, maybe you are like an attention seeker, you know, and maybe he'll be less competition. Maybe you do like to talk and, you know, and maybe that way you've got this kind of quiet, supportive guy. I'm going to try a different kind of guy. Uh, so that was my, my thinking. Like I did feel something was off with him, but I just thought everything else I've done before didn't work. You know, my first long-term boyfriend, that didn't work out. You know, my first marriage didn't work out. Let me try this really different, quiet guy. What, what started to happen, Erin? When, when you, so you had the red flags at the start that you ignored. What, what transpired then over the years? Uh, the first year and a half that uh, he and I dated, he was just uh, the most uh, the most perfect boyfriend you could imagine, you know? Uh, they call this stage of narcissistic or any abusive relationships the love bombing stage. Anyone who's ever read anything about uh, an, a cycle of abuse knows that there's a love bombing and a devaluation, you know, and a discard phase and whatnot. So the love bombing stage with uh, my husband and I lasted a really long time because we didn't live together. So the first, uh, I want to say, first year and a half that we were dating, flowers every date trip to Hawaii, little gifts, Tiffany bracelet, like just for no reason at all. And I thought, oh, this is so lovely. What a thoughtful guy. Like I really deserve this, you know, but what I didn't realize is that uh, this was all for a purpose. You know, narcissists don't think the same way that not narcissists think. And that is narcissistic people, people who have really NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, and anybody with a high degree of narcissism thinks transactionally. So they mm. think, well, what can this person give me? What provide to me? What can I get from them? And how am I going to get it? So they think in a way that doesn't involve any emotional empathy because they don't really have that naturally in, in them. They don't have that ability to have empathy with others. Uh, so, uh, so I was... I thought I had the best, most attentive, helpful, romantic, wonderful boyfriend. After about a year and a half, he convinced me to sell my home because I owned a home and he rented a home. So I sold my home so we could buy a home and move in together. But big red flag number two, he didn't have any cash. He had a better paying job so he could qualify for the mortgage, but he didn't have any money to put down on the house. So I put all my money down on the house and that was me selling my house. So I'll say the words, $100,000. <laughs> I 
I put $100,000 down on this house for the both of us. But we had a, a little contract between us that said that if we ever split up or sold the house, I would get the first $100,000 out of the proceeds from it. And that was signed and notarized and whatnot and put in a folder and, you know, there for the next 17 years. At the end, you'll find out what happened to that contract. It disappeared. Uh, but anyhow, so we move in together and my husband is the hardest working guy I ever met. He renovates the kitchen, the bathrooms, the flooring, the, he's doing everything. He's working so hard. And I'm thinking, what a lucky girl I am. I great husband. Everybody else is their husbands watching a football game, drinking beers and hanging with their friends. And I'll get to that later. And mine's out there snow blowing. And what a great husband I have. But you know, he's doing all these things for me. But here's what's missing. Everything. You know, everything. I feel like I have a guy that I've hired hand is over here. Because what I'm missing is being cared for and cuddled talked to and listened to and valued and considered and, you know, making mutual decisions, things that, you know, people in relationships do. And I would convince myself that he was just looking out for me, taking care of me, making it easier for me by, you know, taking care of that thing. Well, you know, by the time he was done taking care of it, he had all the passwords to all of the financial accounts and the control of everything in my life, for the most part. And then the arrogance starts to come out, a little bit at a time. Once we're all moved in together, right? So he's got what he wants. He's got the $100,000, he's got the house, he's got me, all my friends, and my big career, and everything, he's got it. It's all locked in. And uh, that's when the devaluing stage begins. So then all of a sudden we get little passive aggressive remarks and I would hear him say things like, well, you know, it's tough being in the top 2% surrounded by the lower 98. And I'm like, you're sitting, right? You know, yeah. Well, you couldn't always, it was right. But so things like that, we would go shopping at the grocery store and he would refuse to help bag groceries. He would just refuse. He would say, my father told me if I went to college, I wouldn't have to bag groceries. So I'm not doing it. And I'm like, your father said you couldn't, you wouldn't have to be living. Okay, but it is awfully nice to help the checker bag groceries, especially if there's 20 people in line behind us, right? Like, what if you were at the end of the line? Well, I'll tell you what happens if he's at the end of the line. All he does is cuss about how people are taking too long and writing a check and should be bagging their own groceries. So, you know, it's those kinds of little things that start to crop up where they say things and you start to understand how they really think in the beginning that is what is the false self that's the love bombing and the mirroring stage when they're trying to connect up with a potential they say target it is a target someone who is gullible and willing and uh, uh has a lot going on that they can snatch away so uh so that's what happened and it just got worse and worse and worse uh he played a lot of triangulation games with his daughter he had a young daughter, about 11 years old. My son was seven at the time. And he would tell the daughter that I didn't like her and tell me that the daughter didn't like me. But so that's that triangulation skill. And so I'd say, well, you know, you, you have to accept me. You know, I live here and, you know, whatever. And he's like, well, you know, you're not her cup of tea. And 
You know, all of this was completely untrue. She did not not like me, and I did not like her. I didn't even know her. She's a beautiful little girl, you know? I just wanted her to be my stepdaughter and, you know, take her to yoga class and the nutcracker. That's what I wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, he just wanted to control the narrative and control everything in my life. And then he started poisoning me against my friends and telling my friends weren't my friends and trying to isolate me. The next thing he did that was pretty crazy is he actually built a safe room in the house where in the corner of the attic, he built a little room that would lock from the inside with a burner phone and instructions on it and tell me that that's there just in case my ex-husband tries to come and kill me. Now, not for one second did it occur to me at the house. Never occurred to me once. But once he said that, it's like in your head and you think, oh, it's a good thing I have a safe room. Right? So you start to believe it because narcissists are very believable. You know, they say it with a straight face and you think, well, I would never lie to a person about that. I would never tell a person they're in danger if they weren't in danger. That would be a, that would be horrible to do. Right? So nobody, my husband's not doing that to me. He's only looking out for me. Right? So that's that cognitive dissonance can be very strong in a person with a survival brain. So I, 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 I warn you, young, young people out there, you know, that uh, are just coming out. I was 40 when I met mine, but I think I was just lucky coming out of your homes uh, because there are people out there that, that are predatory. You know, they think in a different transactional way. And you really have to trust how you feel around people. It's almost like the universe gave you a little radar, you know, like a little compass and a little radar inside you. You really have to pay because everybody's radar is really specific to them. You've identified your husband, Aaron, your ex-husband, as a covert narcissist. We've done an episode in the podcast before, which is actually, I think it was last year's most popular episode around narcissism. You know, it's just your overt narcissist, your, your stereotypical narcissist. Could you maybe explain for, for the listeners a little bit around covert narcissism? Uh, the best I can do. It's almost like narcissism turned inside out. It's like the exact inverse. And you wonder... You know, if they do this intentionally, um, it's hard to, hard to describe, but I will say that a covert narcissist, uh, deep inside of them has almost an awareness of their very deep shame and self-loathing. And it's so incredibly painful to them to know how different they are inside that they just lash out. Uh, at everybody, but they, they know they won't be accepted if they do it in a kind of a bombastic, loud way. They're not getting away with it like some people. Uh, some people, <laughs> I can name so many. Um, so a covert narcissist internally has very deep shame and self-loathing. Externally, they usually present themselves as your savior, your, uh, your helper, you know, your best friend or whatnot, your confidant, somebody you can trust, somebody that's trustworthy. My husband did not speak in public. He rarely spoke at all. And why they're not speaking is because they're gathering information. They're really collecting information so that they can use that in an opportunistic way. So it's so very difficult to detect somebody with covert narcissism for a very long time. Another thing they do is they give you what's called intermittent reinforcement. 
where they will be very kind to you one day and bring you flowers. And the next day they'll, you know, tell you, you look fat in your pants and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> huh? So, um, so it keeps you kind of like off your mark. You can't tell if this person you're with is nice or mean. And then when you say what you said was mean, then they say, I never said that. That never happened. And you're like, and I just heard you say that. Like, are you sure you're okay? Like, come on, you must be making that up. And I'll tell you, if you get yourself in any kind of conversation with a person that does that to you, run for the hills. So it's it, it that's gaslighting, you know, that's mm. gaslighting, invalidating your reality. But if somebody gaslights you with a straight face over and over and over again for a year, for five years, for 20 years, I tell you, it does a number on your brain. You know, they've done some uh, brain scans that say that uh, people have like a swelling of their amygdala, their fight flight area of their brain and a shrinking of their hippocampus, which is, you know, responsible for your conscious thought and, and whatnot. It really does cause a real physiological brain damage to you when you're gaslit because you don't want, you don't understand why would somebody tell me that didn't happen? I swear it just happened. Oh, fine. I'm just not going to let that bother me. Right? And so you go on like that for long. You know, you are that frog in the boiling water. You are just a, a pile of mush. I tell people, like, my brain was mashed potatoes by the time I was done. I didn't know up from down. I didn't, I didn't know if I believed what I said. I was like, geez, I thought I said that. Geez, why would he say I didn't? I swear, but the conversation's moving so fast. Maybe I just imagined it. That takes me back to where we started earlier and we were talking about the $100,000 agreement to purchase uh, home together. He also used his gaslighting tactic on me uh, to steal that. So here's what happened. So as we were get, getting ready, we were moving to Panama. So that's just another part that's in the book. We built a retirement home uh, on an island off the coast of Panama and we were retiring there. And uh, we went to sell our house and our business and everything. And I went to go look for the $100,000 agreement so I could make sure that the $100,000 I put in that was supposed to be my son's inheritance uh, would be in my account because we sold the house. Anyway, it was gone. And I asked him what happened to it. And he told me that I ripped it up in front of him and that maybe I don't remember doing that because are you okay? Aaron, like, geez, you have been under a lot of stress lately. Maybe you should be a doctor. You know, it's possible you have a brain tumor. Okay, so guess who doesn't have a brain tumor? This girl, right? So, and you, you can't believe, as a, as a person who is an empathetic, normal human being, you can't possibly believe that somebody did that to you. With a straight face, you just sit there and think to yourself, no. I know I didn't rip up a $100,000 agreement four years ago in front of you, and I don't have a brain tumor, and you're lying, and I can't prove it, uh, but it's constant. And I tell you, that was toward the end I started to get to, you know, I realized some things had happened where I started to realize that he was gaming me. And uh, once, they, once they, and I say that about all narcissists, uh, realize you're on to them, they're, they're gone. They're on. They're moving on to their next target, somebody that's not aware of who they are and how they think and, uh, and what they're capable of doing. Uh, so they will escalate their behavior to a frightening place. My husband was uh, dissociative 
I saw him black out, almost black out, like his eyes roll back and him start to shake like he could really hurt me. That happened a few different times. And so toward the end, I was uh, afraid to move to Panama. I would not go to Panama with him. I was having PTSD dreams that he would murder me in Panama and cut me up and put me in the jungle or throw me overboard somewhere. So uh, so I didn't end up going and we ended up getting divorced. And uh, he's down there with a what they call new supply. I'll call it a new girl. But uh, apparently had that girlfriend going from even while we were married, because that's another thing. Narcissists live a secret life and they're darn good at it. My husband had his browsers didn't trace like I everything was locked down. Passwords. You couldn't get into anything. Why? He would just tell me he was in IT and he was being safe and smart. And that way nobody could, you know, break in and steal his money or anything like that. But in reality, it's probably because he had a bunch of porn and girlfriends and money on the side and who knows what else was going on. Uh, and I'll tell you, that's probably pretty common. So once you unpack a relationship with a covert narcissist, it's mind blowing, you know, to look back on it and have to rethink everything you've been through and think that wasn't what was happening. Like when he said, I love you, he was really meaning I die so I can take all your money. You know, and you go, wow, <laughs> holy moly. Uh, there's a girl I watch on YouTube that I love. Her name is Lisa A. Romano. She's a life coach, and she talks uh, mostly about narcissism. She'd had a 13-year marriage to a narcissist, and she has a cute story that I'd love to share. She says, being in a relationship with a covert narcissist is akin to being a chicken caught in a tornado. You're like spinning all around and going, you don't know, from down chicken in a tornado until suddenly you are violently flung like a mile away, and you turn around and you go, holy shit, that was a big tornado. And that is really the reality of unpacking life with a covert narcissist. If you're with a, you know, an overt narcissist, you might be pretty aware that that person is sucking up all the air in the room and the attention. But to be with a covert narcissist, they think exact, exactly the same way, but they operate so under the radar, you have to kind of reprocess everything that happened with a different lens. And it's a really hard road out for people who have been through this. And that's why I hope my book will help them. Book. Mm. Oh. I learned I learned how it was, what part of it was me, you know, so that I could learn how to protect myself in the future and learn how to start practicing setting appropriate boundaries and valuing myself, you know, so that I could, uh, you know, uh, move forward in life, you know, maybe perhaps the way I should have started out. Uh, but parenting is a real thing. And if you don't have uh, proper parenting, it's a real struggle. You know, if you come from dysfunction, it's a real struggle to figure out how to move forward uh, having relationships with other people. Is there any uh, kind of early warning signs that people could maybe look out for her? Someone that may be in a relationship or someone that's going, oh, hang on a second, that, that sounds a little bit familiar. Or maybe they're not even aware of, of what's happening. Is there anything you, you, any advice you would have for those people? Yes, thank you for asking that question. That is my, my, uh, my main goal going forward is to be able to educate people, illuminate, you know, so that they can see some of these early warning signs in a relationship and, uh, you know, put on the pause button. So uh, the first thing is that uh, if a relationship moves really quickly, really quickly if they are pushing for you're my soulmate i've never met anybody like you like moving in quickly or you know uh being intimate quickly very quickly more so than any other relationship 
take that as a, a real early warning sign. You know, they are trying to lock you in with their little tricks. You know, and they want to get to you as quick as possible. Uh, trust your gut. That's my other thing I tell people. Trust your gut. You know, you're going to feel something. When somebody is, there's something wrong with them, trust your feelings. You know, people tell you who they are <laughs> right away. You just have to be paying attention. Listen to everything they say. Um, certainly, uh, secretiveness. You know, when people aren't forthcoming with a response that, you know, if they take a, a moment to pause, my husband and other narcissists I've met will, will take a pause and, and then they'll say, well, I just want to give you a thoughtful answer so that I'm being honest about how I, you know, respond to you. Well, in reality, they may be concocting an answer that's going to serve them, that's going to get the behavior they want from you or whatever it is they're trying to get from you. Uh, so those are some really early warning signs. You know, when you meet somebody and they're not forthcoming, they seem secretive, maybe you haven't been at their house. Oh, here's another one. If they uh, trash their exes, if they call their ex crazy, run. Run fast. Because uh, that's the common word. Oh, my ex was crazy. She was crazy. My husband told me his first wife was crazy. And I believed her. I believed him that she was crazy. I was like, oh. You know, and all the stories he would tell. Well, after he left and moved to Panama, I uh, had lunch with her. <laughs> we got. To <laughs> well, I bet that was a big nightmare for him, but because I found out like which which one of them was crazy, and it wasn't her. Totally normal. Uh, so those are some signs: love bombing, uh, secretiveness, not forthcoming, not uh, not a not a not an. Uh, an appropriately timed response, like a pause in responding, mm -hmm. they're concocting a response for you. And if they trash anybody from their past, I'd say run. You know, a good person will say that two people failed at a relationship. You know, somebody who's a good person that you could trust. A good person probably has nice things to say about their mom, too. And so if they say bad things about, about their mom, you should watch out for that. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, you know, just really the gut is it. You, everybody's got the ability to protect themselves. Just know that there's a you to protect and just know that your body will tell you, you know, who you can trust and who you can't trust. Just tune into you. Tune into yourself. Mm. What impact did that have on you? 20 years of that, Erin. How, how, what, what way did that affect you? Uh, well... I'm happy to say, Alan, that I am really feel completely recovered from it now. So thank God. One thing that I learned is that uh, neuroplasticity is real. <laughs> and fair itself. Yay, brains. They're amazing. Um, it took a number on, it did a number on my health. You know, I had so, mm. I felt like I had a black cloud hanging over me for 20 years. I really did. I felt like all these things were going wrong. I had a car accident. This thing happened. I got Lyme disease, I got Bell's palsy because I had a tick bite. All these things that, you know, just seemed like a lot of bad things, you know, were going on with me. And even if I could list another 10 or 20 of them, I, only, I honestly feel like it was the universe telling me, warning me that I was in a dangerous situation. I needed to get out of it, you know? Like, what's going to get you, Aaron? Like a bang over the head with a mallet? What's going what's to do it? So... <laughs> That was the biggest, the biggest thing, because if you can't sleep, you know, your health deteriorates very quickly. Mm -hmm. I would sleep for two hours. I'd wake up in kind of a panic. 
And I'm going to have to believe that I had cortisol, you know, shooting, spiking around through my body, you know, that would wake me up in the middle of the night and keep me from sleeping. And then I'd have ruminating thoughts and anxiety, and I couldn't go back to sleep for a couple of hours. So that did a number on my health. I had eczema, I had migraine headaches, I had digestive problems, and they were all as a result of sleeping two hours and up two hours. Uh, just living with somebody like that, you know, you don't even really realize what's wrong. And he was leading me to different doctors, and perhaps you should try, you know, this med or you know, maybe if I had a drink of wine before, next thing you know, you're on drugs and alcohol and you can't They just It's like being a prisoner and they do imprison you in a million different ways. So my health suffered. I was not able to read. And I'm not lying. You know, I couldn't read a book. I couldn't even read an article on the internet because I couldn't focus my attention. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't read. Um... I didn't trust myself. I had eczema, uh, a lot of things. A lot of things were going on with my body and they were all signs from my body to tell me that I was in trouble. You know, it's not, people don't just get sick for no reason. You know, stress is such a, it's so powerful. Uh, it, can, it can really take your health out. You know, it can really take your health down. So uh, stress is an important thing to learn how to manage and recognize and, and take care of in yourself. So um, the good news is I sleep now, you know, I can read a book, I can write a book, right? So, uh, so yeah, that's, there's hope for everyone out there that has been in a narcissistic relationship. And I, and I have to also say that there are many people in the world that are in a narcissistic uh, partnership and they are not able to get out. For many reasons, they may be physically unable. They may have no finances or ability to. Mm. They may have been uh, taken away to another country. That might have happened to me or another place away from their support system and no ability, you know, to uh, take care of themselves. There are people I've met online that have diseases and things like that, and they're trapped with narcissists. And it can really, really, really take a person out. Uh, and there are tools for that, too. So if you're in a stuck situation, you can educate yourself about tools they call gray rocking, where you can, you know, learn how to be uh, unemotional, almost like they are in their presence. Uh, and then they can't get a rise out of you and they can't get quite as much from you. And you can hold on to your person because they really will. Your person will just go away. I don't know if that's clear when I say your person, but your your identity, your sense of self you know, will just kind of diminish over time. So the only way to hold on to that if you're trapped in a situation is what they call gray rock. You can't escape or do what they call no contact. You mentioned you're able to read a book and you're also been able to, to write a book, Erin. Can you tell, tell our listeners and our viewers about the book, where they can find it, and most importantly, where they can also find you online? Well, I'm everywhere. So I'm easy to find uh, my book. I'm going to hold it up again. I love my book. It's really, it's connected me to so many amazing people. It's called A Dark Force, 20 Years with a Covert Narcissist. I have uh, received, I have 88 five-star reviews on Amazon right now uh, from people who have said, you know, your book has helped me to know that I cannot change this person and that I really have to focus on myself and I need to trust my gut. And that's, that's the message in the book. My book is a very happy and uh, redemptive ending. You can get my book on Amazon. 
You can get my book on barnesandnoble.com. And you can also get my book on my own website, which is adarkforce.com. And on my website, not only do I sell books, but I also sell voodoo dolls. Because voodoo dolls. That's right. Because doesn't everyone in the world need at least one, right? Just <laughs> need several, but at least. <laughs> so, uh, so I sell little voodoo dolls that are hand sewn. They're made for me um, by a woman in Europe, and they come with a red heart on them and three little pins in them. Uh, and so dolls, and I sell autographed copies of my book from my website, adarkforce.com. I'm everywhere. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Facebook. Uh, so you can find me everywhere. I make memes uh, about narcissism and awareness and about self-love about my book with quotes from the book. Um, the TikTok, I've been doing different chapters and it's been really fun to, to do all that stuff. It does take up a lot of time, uh, but I've really mm. the community that I'm building with people all around the world. I met a girl that escaped from a narcissistic marriage in India at three in the morning with her purse and that's it, right? So incredible to hear these survivor stories from people who are reclaiming their lives and encouraging others, you know, to, uh, you know, to uh, prioritize themselves, you know? And I don't mean that in a way that a narcissist would. I mean, just mm. check in with yourself first. Am I okay with this? If I'm okay with this, then we can proceed. So before we leave the last words of wisdom with Erin for the last time, our guests with the last words of wisdom, just a quick reminder on the social media folks, you know what to do, you know where it is. It's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. The handle in all of those is at STMH Podcast. If you could check out the YouTube channel, you know, please give a subscribe, please give a comment, please give a like, all of that sort of stuff for one last time. And if you want to check out the website where you can see all of the former 123 episodes, this will be episode 124, you can check out the website www.stmhpodcast.com and you can email any of your thoughts, even after the podcast, even after all of this time, you know, please email in your correspondence and your feedback. I'd love to hear from you. But as I said earlier in the intro, folks, the next episode will be the last time you will hear from the Straight Talking Mental Health Podcast. It'll be episode 125 on the 25th, ceremoniously on my birthday, just happened to be the case. But before all of that, you know what to do, folks. I'll be back, same bad time, same bad channel, one last time. And in the meantime, look after yourselves and look after each other. One of the things we ask of every guest that comes on the podcast, Aaron, is we ask them to share some words of wisdom, some life learnings, whether it's a motto or a creed or something to, 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 to live by. With yourself, given the life that, that you've led, the amazing life that you've led, thank you for sharing a, a fraction of it with us with us today. It doesn't have to be around narcissism, covert narcissism, or anything like that, but is there any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the, with the listeners and viewers out there? Well, Alan, I would be happy to. I've already sort of shared them a little bit throughout my conversation with you, mm. but I sometimes will sign my book uh, to people, and I will say, trust your gut and love yourself first. So those are my little sayings, little quotes. Trust your gut, most important, and love yourself first. You know, you must, they say, you have to love some yourself before you love someone else. But mm. that's not just a phrase. You really have to fall in love with yourself and take good care of yourself. And, you know, I could tell that I had recovered and had come back when I started finding myself 
uh, spontaneously singing or spontaneously dancing. Suddenly, like I, I went, oh my God, you're singing. You must be happy again. Uh, so yeah, I, I want everybody, especially young people, I wish I could get my book to every teenage person, you know, so that they could have this kind of information before they meet a narcissist. I just wasn't even aware that people were out there like that. You know, I knew there were serial killers, but I thought mm. us were just, you know, doing our best. You know, we're flawed, we're human, screw up sometimes. But I didn't really realize how many people are out there with a different mindset, you know, and their mindset is to take advantage of others. And uh, they think you're doing that to them. And they just got to get to <laughs> first, right? But, uh, you know, just be, trust your God, gosh, I can't say it enough. Mental health.